Welcome to the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host, Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host, Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing this morning, Shihan? I am doing fantastic and really looking forward to this third part of our series on the student's journey to black belt. Yeah, that's right. And we have uh, our regular guest now, Sensei Chris Richards, third degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Welcome back, Sensei. Awesome. Thank you both. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. So this is kind of a neat culmination. Uh, we started this podcast just to really talk about the journey um, from white all the way through black. And now we're going to talk about that black belt journey. I know there are a number of people out there who've been listening to the podcast. You've been asking questions coming up. Hopefully you found out of value. And this is going to be kind of moving on to that next level. You know, for me, I've been studying Kobukai for a number of years. I often call it an unimportant number because it's just the time and training and, you know, it's the journey that you go on. You know, while I'm an instructor who jointly runs a school with a peer of mine, I still feel like a brown belt, a blue belt, a yellow belt, even more so a white belt after all these years. And I was thinking, Shan, maybe that's a great way to, for us to start to tee this up. You know, the entry to black belt, I know we have some questions out there from people. Uh, we can talk about the evolution of the journey and kind of go off in a couple different directions here. Well, that sounds fantastic. You know, I know where we left off the last time we were talking about that journey through Brown Belt and, you know, what that was going to be like as you prepared for your Black Belt test and, you know, sort of what our um, expectations are of the growing maturity of the student towards Black Belt. So I think we're at the point right now where maybe we can uh, talk a little bit about the test itself and then, you know, what is life like? Uh, after the test for a new black belt going through the black belt journey. I'd agree. Let's roll with it. So from a student standpoint, of course, now you've trained, say, five years. It could be, you know, four. It could be six. It could be seven. It depends on the individual and, you know, the amount of time they've been able to dedicate to the art. But, you know, as we've said all along, as long as you continue to participate, um, you know, you will eventually make it if you can, you know, get your mind right and your body right simultaneously and, and, uh, train, train, train. So it comes to the day where you're going to do your black belt test. And I can attest for myself and for people that have told me nobody ever feels ready for that test. Um, you know, they've trained as hard as they can. There's probably even a point along the way where they felt they were ready and, you know, their instructor told them, nah, you're not ready. Go back and train some more. And and then that fateful day comes, and I think everybody is extremely nervous, does not feel like they're ready. And, um, you know, they're, they're kind of dreading, you know, doing the tests. Uh, but at the same time, there's an incredible excitement to potentially pass and become part of that uh, Udancha group. Um, so typically, uh, real quickly, I won't go into a ton of detail, um, you know, on the black belt test, um, you know, family and friends are invited. All of the students are there. We often have instructors from, you know, uh, other schools, even outside of Kobukai that want to come and watch. Um, all of the black belts are, are there. It's a very, very formal occasion. Um, the brown belt student is asked to, you know, just literally go through everything that they know, right? We, we start out with the simplest things like vocabulary, Japanese vocabulary, and then the history and um, then we go through the basics right from the very beginning, your, your basic ukemi, your basic striking, your basic escapes, and, you know, ask them to demonstrate 
all of the techniques from white, yellow, blue, brown, um, and do it at an appropriate level. And then if they uh, make it through that portion of the test successfully, which means they have executed everything uh, correctly and done it with the correct you know, speed and spirit, um, then uh, we typically have a section after, which is a little bit more of a practical test, which is uh, unrehearsed self-defense. So just, you know, we call out the attack and they get to do whatever they want. Um, and we get to see how they respond sort of under that pressure. And then there is sort of the the contest um, to with other black belts. So they're going to do, at the very least, uh, Nawaza with two black belts and then Randori with two black belts and then, you know, full-on uh, no-rules uh, fighting with two black belts. Um, th that's the minimum. It could be more black belts. Uh, but that is really sort of the test of will. At that point, you've been testing for two hours and your body and mind are exhausted. And now we're asking you to do something that's even tougher than the, you know, the test itself. And it's not really about whether that person wins or loses any of those matches. It's whether or not they suck it up and continue or if they give up. And why that's important is in real-life self-defense. It always seems to come at the most inopportune time. You've just left the gym and you're exhausted, or you've come out of a two-hour jiu-jitsu workout, or your knee is injured, or your lower back is injured, and suddenly you're having to defend yourself from the worst possible state. And if you're going to give up then, then you don't deserve really to be a black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. It's showing us that no matter what, you're willing to go down to your last breath um, in order to uh, succeed. And everyone who has passed their black belt test has demonstrated that mentality and that fortitude and that commitment. Um, and then, you know, the test is over and... The black belts, you know, go to another room uh, where in private they can discuss the test and talk about the things they saw that were good and things that might need a little work and all come to sort of a consensus that that person should or should not move into the Yudanshikai and, um, you know, become a Gokai Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Uh, if that's the case, you know, then we go through the uh, promotion ceremony and, you um, you know, the congratulatory throws and the after party and, and all of that. So um, that's that's sort of the, the test, the culmination of all that study. But that test and that passing into uh, the Black Belt Yudan Shikai is kind of like graduating college. You've gone through four or five years uh, of your education, and now you have that great basis uh, to grow from. And so whereas for some people, you know, getting their black belt is the crowning achievement of their martial art career, I think any good student that's made it to a black belt in at least our schools realizes that is just the beginning of the journey. You have now been educated and now you must truly delve into and discover what this is all about and how it really impacts you and others. And, and that's where that journey starts that we're about to talk to. And I think that's a great lead-in, uh, Shion, because the, the test sucks. They're, it's not your best day. You hope it is. You normally go out and you do the best you possibly can. And to your point, at that 
your your mindset is I will get up no matter what happens to my last breath. And I think I remember you said, if I can tap Sensei Matt, I'm done. And you told me to get up again. It was lucky. I got a mini hill. He could have knocked my block off any day, just like he did that, that day too. And then you get that that period of time where the black belts go away, which I also call the worst moment of time in your life. Because it could be five minutes, it could be four hours. You don't know the difference at that point. You're exhausted, you're tired, and you normally don't feel like you made it. But looking even at a different lens on this, black as we've said it, you're pretty much locked in. You're committed, you're focused to meet that bar. You're going to go in, you're going to do whatever it takes to give your best show. However, I do believe at that point in your career as a student, you're very myopic. It's all about the test, not what comes after. I would hazard a guess that I didn't think about anything that came after that. It was just, I just need to make this bar. And I think that's the right thing for a student too, right? As you said, it's like graduating college. But the meaning of what you just graduated and where the journey goes or where it may take you is probably not even presented it to you. That's true. That is true. And and it's it's really a changing point for the student. Because up until Black Belt, it's been very structured. Um, the, the learning methodology and the teaching methodology um, is very, very structured. You have charts with specific techniques broken down by category. You know what the expectations of you are. Um, they're you know, articulated to you often from senior students and from your instructors. And you know that you must demonstrate uh, your charts and the names and the vocabulary, and you must have the practical ability to do, you know, Nawaza, Randori, you know, free fighting, all of that. So it's a guided journey. It's like somebody is taking you on a tour. But after Black Belt, there is no obvious structure. I don't want to say there is no structure because we're going to actually talk about the structure. And I think that's going to answer a lot of questions for people, mm-hmm. but it's not as obvious. Are there charts? Yeah, there's more techniques to learn, but the journey is very participatory. It's more like gentle guidance than it is a hard structure. And everybody takes that journey differently, at least from their perspective. Uh, but from my perspective, everybody takes that journey very similarly. And so I'm hoping that during this conversation, we can talk about that little structure, uh, what the expectations are after Black Belt, what your goals may be. Um, those may be different for everyone. And what I see the rest of that journey being like, both for people that want to continue as a lifelong student, those who have teaching skills and aspirations, and maybe even those who come to a point where they say, I've enjoyed this journey. It'll always you know, be something that has changed my life, but I also now have other life aspirations that I want to dedicate my time to, and, and they move on. I also want to chat a little bit about studying other martial arts during this period. So uh, hopefully we'll touch on all of those and give our Black Belt students and those who aren't but are listening a view into what the next section of that journey is like. And you brought up a really good point there, Sheehan. Milestones have always been a part of when you're coming up through the ranks. Uh, Yellow is tangible, moving from white, blue from yellow to brown. But those milestones aren't as, they're not like a Karen on a hike, right? They're not a big pile of rocks, and if you get to the rocks, you're there. It gets a little bit more mushy. 
And I think that's one of the neat things about it. Even as you come in, right, as a senpai, your goal is to learn your brand new black belt. You're there to teach, learn how to teach, and also be exceptionally brutal. You're just a brown belt with a brand new belt. Uh, you're an enforcer, the protector, the instructor in the school, but you're still enjoying that learning and going, hey, now I've got this brand new chart of things and it's got knives and it's got hanbo, and, but it's just, you're still in that raw phase, I think. And you're committed to learning your craft and perfecting it without mercy. Now, I think as you move on you know, through the years, you're still finding your way, but you're also more protective. You're representing the art as a licensed instructor. You've got that tradition, the lineage, and a level of responsibility that changes a little bit too. Yeah, those are very good points. And you know, you yourself have experienced uh, them and that journey. So let's start out with, because I know this has been a question that has come to me many times, and I think it'll set some structure for the rest of our conversation. And that is the levels of black belt. Out there in the martial art world, there are sort of two systems of how you progress from a ranking standpoint after black belt. One is a system of promotions and belt levels loosely based on what judo invented, what Kano invented in in the judo system. And that was a multicolored belt system. Um, At the very beginning uh, of the belt system, it was just white and black. And then as competition kind of came along, it it broke into four belts. It was white, um, green, some levels of brown, and black. And, and that lasted for quite a while. I would say that probably lasted into, uh, I'm going to say into the mid to late 80s, 1980s, maybe early 1990s. Um, there was some influence coming from some of the Korean arts where um, for, I don't really know the reason, but you know, they had a blue belt in their, in their system. And sometimes the blue belt was exchanged for the green belt level. You know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu came along and basically used the judo-type ranks only using the blue belt instead of the green belt. And then there is the, and, and that system, I'm sorry, is called the Don ranking system, D-A-N, uh, where, you know, you have certain levels of belts. So below black belt, they're called Q levels, K-Y-U, and then after black belt, they're called Don levels, D-A-N. And those were, you know, the typical where you hear, I'm a first degree black belt, second degree black belt, third degree black belt, et cetera, et cetera. And the, using the Japanese names, Shodan, Nidan, Sandan, Yandan, et cetera. But um, there's also a more traditional and, and original way um, of ranking. And I'm, I'm saying that ranking in air quotes because it's not really rank the way we're thinking about it. It's, um, and it's instructor licenses. So... After you achieved um, your black belt, and this is even before the times that there was belts in the way we think of belts, like the Obi-Bek in Japan was just something that held your clothes on. But when you reached that first level, your Oku-Iri level, that was the first level where they said, okay, this person's no longer just like a student. They, they are now a full you know, practitioner, a full warrior, if, if it was during that period of time, very ready to, you know, be with the senior ranking military people fighting on the battlefield, etc. And so you had sort of an entrance into that, which is what Oku-Iri um, kind of means, sort of a, an entrance into sort of some of the secret teachings. 
And then after that, um, if you hung around for a while and people thought you were like super serious and, you know, added something to the the warrior level of the clan, then your name was recorded in a book or a scroll as um, having some kind of official standing in that group. And they would refer to that often as Mokurogu, meaning just, um, you know, sort of a scroll or, or a book, like your name's in the book, uh, loosely translated. And then after that, um, as that person continued to develop skills and became very valuable to the people that were under him, both the Yudancha and Mudancha level people, um, then you would move towards an official teaching license, and um, you, which is called Menkyo, and Menkyo just literally means license. Um, and that was where whoever was in charge of that uh, system, that clan, that military group, whatever, said, you know, we are putting it on paper that you are licensed to teach what we teach. And you can therefore you know, bring people up to that first, you know, quote unquote, black belt level, um, because we think that your technical ability is there, but also that your teaching ability is there. And then after that, there were a couple of levels of, I would say, recognition. Um, You would move on to sort of a, a higher level where you were considered a master instructor. And you would get a master's instructor's, you know, notation on your license or a new license, just saying that you were a a master instructor. You could actually now bring people up to the instructor level, um, up to the Mankyo license level. And then after that, you would come to a level where other instructors would come to you for instruction, not only in technique, but in in teaching methodology and a teaching technique. So not only were you a master instructor, but you were an instructor of instructors. Um, And so that would uh, be, you know, one of the highest levels of of licensure that you could get. Um, And then after that, there really isn't like other licensing, but there are titles that are conferred on uh, people that spend like their entire life you know, in the art and embody it, um, heart and soul. So sometimes you hear the term Hanshi used. Um, and there are other terms, whether, you know, if, if you're in more of the Aiki arts or more of the sword arts or, or other things that, you know, refer to that, you know, highest lifelong level. So, so what I've just described is the more traditional um, viewpoint of how, how you progress after Black Belt. We are as you've noticed on our diplomas, um, the big title, the big licensure name that you receive that's printed in large letters, that's the old name, right? We follow that old methodology. But under it, in very small letters, we also write the equivalent Don rank. And the reason we do that is because the vast majority of martial arts out there are using Don ranks after black belts. And so if you're in a conversation with somebody and you know you told them, you know, oh, my level is, you know, Mankyo or I have a, I have a teaching license or whatever. I don't know if that means anything to those Don rank people. Um, so it's easy to say, oh, I'm a Sandan, you know, I'm a third degree or I'm a second degree or I'm a fourth degree or, or whatever it is. And so, you know, we, I would say loosely try to align those um, numbers uh, to, you know, the traditional um, ranking system.
So with that structure in mind, right, those are the type of, of paths that you can take, right? You can remain a senpai as a senior student and a black belt and just enjoy training and maybe you will, maybe you won't be promoted, whatever, that's fine. Um, if you're still hanging around for a couple of years, your name gets put in the book. If you have teaching aspirations, you may move on to a menkyo where you have um, a teaching license. And uh, after that, it just depends on how long and how well um, you traverse the rest of that journey and what level of mastery in, in teaching and, and in execution that you reach. So sort of with that structure in mind, maybe um, we can address either some of the questions that you had, Chris. I know Sri, you had some questions and, and some of our other black belts also posed some questions that you know, really kind of delved a little deeper into what I just talked about. That'd be great. I'd like to lead in with two personal questions. And I did see the questions that were submitted. I think there's some golden nuggets I'd like to go after in there too. But great. for you, Xi'an, because you've been doing this for an extremely long time. Yeah, 43 um, years. Yeah. And you and I had a great conversation. I think you've said this to all the black belts. When you do get your instructor's license, it just really means been there, done that. So being that person who has been there, done that, can you just give us a quick overview of your first teaching experiences, how you felt, what you learned, and how has that changed over the 5, 10, 20, and 40 years that you've been doing this? Sure, absolutely. First of all, I like the point that you make about uh, been there, done that, because that is the very loose translation of the word sensei, uh, which just means teacher. It can apply to anything. You can be a sensei in high school, a sensei of tennis, whatever. Um, however, in the martial art context, um, you know, it, it means you are a, a licensed instructor. And also the, the kanji, kanji loosely translates as lived before, really meaning exactly what you said. Been there, done that. And um, I can tell you 100% that when I was eventually awarded the uh, title of sensei, um, I had a vague idea of how to teach, but but not much. Um, when I first got my black belt, and not even before that, when I was a brown belt, I used to help out in the kids class um, and just, you know, helped my instructor teach the kids class. When I became a black belt, I did both the kids class and I helped with some seminars with uh, like women's classes and police classes and, um, you know, taught sort of the lower ranks in our normal class. And I would do my best and, you know, constantly have my uh, senpais like Walt Miller, Abbott Schlemmer, Mike Tuz, Don Westergren, of course, my instructor, Dan Eusti at that at my first school, um, you know, tapping me on the shoulder and giving me hints about how to better articulate something or maybe even points that I missed when I was instructing or if I just instructed the whole thing completely wrong or whatever. But they were there to kind of help and guide and and sometimes they would just step in and and I guess I was messing up so bad, they just felt that they needed to step in and they would uh, just instruct. And I would watch intently and try to mimic, you know, what they did. And of course, they're only mimicking what their teachers did and the teachers before them did and the teachers before them did. But it was, you know, it was a fascinating watch how, fascinating for me to watch how smooth 
um, they would teach a technique and how they would articulate it and how they would manually move people's bodies and how they would tell a story around that, you know, that technique to kind of make you understand it at a deeper level. And they demonstrate it slow and then fast and then slow. And so I started to pick up on that over time. It actually took me a while to be awarded sensei. Um, I was actually beyond the third degree equivalent, um, black belt. And it, it took me a while to really pick up on it. But like the technique that always gave you troubles eventually becomes your best technique because you work on it so hard and you study it so hard because you want to become good at it that it eventually becomes your technique. I think it was the same thing uh, with teaching for me. Not entirely sure I was patient enough I'm not entirely sure I thought about it at multiple different levels, um, and I had to learn how to do that, and, and, it, and it took me a bit, but I actually worked at it. I, I, I really worked at how to teach, and I think eventually I became pretty decent at it. So that, that's how it was for me when I first was able to uh, you know, be called sensei and, and go out there and teach. I, I was still kind of figuring it out. And that's, that's one of the interesting things you brought up is as you're teaching these things, I, I think for me, the hardest thing is going, I can teach myself. I can tell myself how to do it. Now, how do I tell hundreds of other people how to do it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's how do hard. We get it so they get it. And everybody learns differently, right? You know, you yeah. have this person that you demonstrate it once and they do it perfectly. And you're like, oh, yay, dream student. And then you've got other people you've showed a million times and they can't figure it out. And you know, it might be because they're not a visual learner. Maybe they, they do it by hearing or you've got to maybe put your hands on them and manually move their body. I mean, there's so many different ways that people learn that as an instructor, it's tough to figure that out, but it's your job. So you have to. And have you run into that where you've had to find out like different ways to teach different students? Every day of the week. Uh, we have a dream student who's just come in. He has been with us now for a month, and I finally found a technique he couldn't pick up on the first or third try. And <laughs> you love every day to be like that. But honestly, it's not. I know when I was a student, I was a blockhead. Um, There's certain things I just never learned right. You know, it was just it took me forever. Ikajo, I'm still learning, I think, but we do that ourselves. But in teaching, you're going to explain it away. You're going to explain it a different way. You might bung it up a couple times. Over time, though, you start kind of having this little Rolodex of how I'm going to explain it to this person. Oh, wait, I see how they do this. And now you start to figure it out. Now, the hope is over time and doing this thousands of times over, you start to kind of package together all those best practices, you know, how to explain it. And you're better able to kind of teach that in a way that people will understand. However, I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I'm teaching multiple classes a week now, and I still find days like, how do I explain it to this person in the right way that they'll get it efficiently and not take them years? Yeah, and that definitely takes some time. It takes years of going through many different kinds of students. And each time you're doing that, you know, you're learning something as the instructor. And, and I think becoming an instructor um, that journey to becoming an instructor is a much more in-depth and intense learning process than it even was going from white to black belt. Um, it's a very different way that you 
as a lifelong student learn. When you have to explain something in 20 different ways to various different people, I mean, you are getting a true depth of knowledge in that specific technique that you're that you're teaching. And um, it is a whole new learning process on its own for you as the, as the lifelong student. Um, I know that I was lucky enough to have different types of teachers along the way, some of whom I spent years training with, some of whom I only saw three or four times a year, um, others who I only trained with a handful of times. But I've been very lucky that these people had a teaching mastery in their own way that I was able to borrow from, right? I would see something that would just impress me immensely on how something was taught, whether it was to a single person or to a group or how a class was managed or whatever. And I would go home and immediately write it down and take a note and try to emulate that myself. You know, I can say that my first instructor, um, Sensei Yusti, was very extremely solid in his basics and made sure that your basics, I mean below black belt, was crisp and exactly the way he had learned it and sharp. And he had great senpais there that, you know, all had different skill sets. And, and that was a fantastic learning experience. Um, his instructor, uh, Sensei Kunzman, who I had the opportunity to train with many times, um, was an incredibly organized thinker. He really knew how to think about how he was going to teach that night. And he would structure a class in a way that sort of led you down a road to the points he wanted to make all along. And as you discovered each little piece during class, it would build and build and build. And then at the end of every class, it's almost like you'd have a Satori, like, oh, okay, wow, that all comes together for me. And it was an incredibly organized way of thinking and articulating and then I had uh, my experiences with Duke Moore, who brought a different thing to the table, and, and that was his his energy and his um, sort of unabashed, I don't know, craziness might be the word, like unafraid, being a small guy. Like he just wanted to scrap. He wanted to get in there and just mix it up. He wanted to grab the biggest person and twist them into a pretzel and then laugh about it. And like there was just like a little bit of that sick edge there. And even though the techniques, of course, were, of course, you know, phenomenal, but that that was also something that I saw from time to time needed to happen in order to wake people up or to challenge them in a way or to, you know, make them uncomfortable. And I, I kind of borrowed some stuff there. And then she, Shion Sikufaroth, um, you know, he was a master teacher, the head, you know, the top student of Sushiro Okazaki, and he had this way of teaching like he was your grandfather who's teaching you how to fish for the first time or how to hunt or how to correctly set up your tent in the woods and make a fire it was it was incredibly deep giving where he wanted you so badly to be so good and he wouldn't hide anything and he just had that powerful gentle manner about him comma unless you challenged him or messed with him and then he was a fire-breathing dragon um and he would just turn it on to the point where you were just like okay got your point 
And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to shut my mouth now and just listen to what you had to say. So um, I feel like all of those people that I got exposed to, you know, plus other people along the way, all added a little something to the way that I teach. And I'm hoping the same thing is happening for our instructors where they got whatever they got from me, but I know they've all had other instructors and have had other mentors in other parts of their life. And I hope they pluck the best fruit from all of that, that and, and help them become the best instructor that they can be for their students. Sheehan, we actually have a question that was submitted by one of our black belts that maybe extrapolates on this exact topic. Oh, great. And that, yeah, and, and that was submitted by uh, Senpai Mariana. And her question is, we seek our senior black belts with specific jujitsu questions or maybe more general advice, maybe regarding teaching, history, techniques, origin, or you name it. So as your seniors, all, all the folks that your teachers that you just mentioned are no longer with us, how do you solve your own inquiries if you have any, if you actually have any? So I think it's a little bit of a circle. I think if you think of your journey from white to black and and you're a black belt now and you go back and you look at your white belt chart in a very, very different way and you're almost excited to practice it because now you know what you know and you really want to get in there and feel what these things are supposed to feel like. And, um, you know, it, it's not about the rank level. It's about that circle that you worked so hard to get up here. And now the very first thing you want to do is go back to the lower rank stuff and really, really learn it and really practice it. Um, it's the same thing for me. I've gone through the journey with my various instructors who, who have, you know, all passed. And now I feel I learn more from my students and my uh, instructors that I promoted over time as I watched them go through the journey. It simply gives me a different lens on the same journey I took, but more from an outside observer standpoint. And, and that truthfully helps me grow. Also, over time, your motivations change. So what I used to seek was my black belt. And then I wanted to be an instructor. So I was doing everything I could to be an instructor. And then I wanted to be a good instructor. And I wanted to promote my own black belts and have my own dojo. And I went through that. And, you know, then I, I even moved beyond that where I see, you know, myself helping these high ranking instructors and, and helping them along with their journey. And, and now I'm to the phase where I just want to ensure that this journey is something that will go on beyond me and people will enjoy it for generations in whatever form it takes and that all of the students of Sensei Chris or Sensei Matt or Sensei Jake or any of the other senseis that are out there, that their students are being given that same incredible journey that we all got to go through because it's it really is incredible. It really is wonderful. And I, I'm just watching and hoping and trying to help those instructors give their own students that journey. So for me, that's my goal now. Um, I don't have a, a belt goal, a title goal, a rank goal. I, I've achieved all of those things that I, that I ever dreamed of. And now for me, um, my goal is just to ensure that as many people as possible, the right people, but as many of them as possible have that that incredible journey, you know, with the help of their 
current instructors. So, Shihan, looking back, uh, here's another question submitted by Senpai Kyle along those lines. At what rank did you open your first school and who helped you run it? Did you get it all right? Did you get some things wrong? What did you underestimate? And what has the change been like with each location over the years? That's a great question. I feel like that's the question when you're having an interview for a job. And after they ask you what your strengths are, they ask you what your weaknesses are. And you're like, I don't want to talk about that. Um, I started my first dojo when I was a shodan, a first degree black belt. Um, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I knew how to teach the techniques at a white belt and, you know, yellow belt level, um, which is, you know, that's fine. You're going to have students, new students like that for a couple of years, and you're going to learn as they learn. Um, but I had absolutely no idea how to run a dojo, what, what it took to do that. I was in the same town as the school that I had received my showdown with and with my instructor's permission, I kind of just started a small club. It wasn't something that was widely advertised or anything. You know, we, we just uh, had a few, you know, people that were friends that wanted to give it a try. I kind of thought I had a, a way of wanting to do it and just gave it a shot. Um, I rented a very small space in the basement of an Elks Club in Danbury, Connecticut, and just gave it a shot. Um, uh, Joe Carvalco, who was a person that I had worked with and I continued to work with for years after, you know, was there as my partner helping us figure it on out. And we got a few students and stuff, but, you know, in the end, it really didn't work out that well because I really wasn't ready. You know, I had a lot of support. I mean, all my senpais and senseis and stuff, they would come and help and it was great. But, you know, I, I, I started to get it. I started to be like, okay, you've got way, way more to go before you are going to successfully pull this off. And so I decided to go on and do other, you know, do other studies at, at that point, you know, studying Aikijitsu and, and other things. Um, you know, I was in the military and did a whole bunch of stuff like that before I really was able to kind of put it all together into something that worked. So, Shion, to that, and it brings me back to a spring day in Florida, I believe circa 2015. And you and I were having mojitos and you said, it's time for you to leave the nest. I went, what? He said, it's time for you to open your own school. I was like, no, <laughs> nowhere, nowhere ready. And it's not really about that story, but when do you think is the right time for a, pers- a person to leave the nest? And it's a, this is a leading question, right? Because you can sit, you can train at a school forever and that's great. But is there, do you think that there's a magical time that somebody should say, maybe I'm going to start learning more by going out and doing my own thing, because I think there is that transition, right? Yeah. Because then it's all you, and it forces an evolution. I wouldn't say that there's a perfect time. I think it's very individualized for each person. My own experience is I've seen some people along the way who have something in them that I feel would be beneficial to students. And, you know, they've always all already, you know, been assistant instructors and senpais in my own class and have had teaching experience and stuff. So it's not like it's day one um, that I just say, oh, go out and do a school. I I mean, I've seen them work and and they have something Mm. that students respect and and it's a good idea. 
but it is very, very much like a bird, you know, pushing chicks out of a nest. I'm sure that mother bird is like, "Mm, hope they fly. And a few of them will, and a few of them fall. You know, some of them land on branches and work their way back up to the nest and spend a little bit more time there before they jump out and fly. And others fall all the way to the ground and get devoured by you know another creature so um it's very much like that you're you know you're doing it with your fingers crossed and hoping that you are making a good decision and that person really is what you thought they were going to be like when put in that role and then you just make the suggestion um you know first of all they have to have expressed interest in teaching um, asked questions about teaching. Uh, you can also see their excitement in teaching somebody else. It's not just all about when am I getting my next rank and when am I going to be better asser than everybody else. Like it, you can start to see that they're willing and ready to start giving back. And I think that's the time where I make the suggestion um, that I think it's time you know that they go out there and, and do something like that. Oh wait a second! It was an option. I thought it was a direct statement when you said it. I'm glad you took it that way. <laughs> uh, of course, it's an option. I mean, I've had many black belts just say, "I don't, I don't want to do this anymore," or "I want to go study something else and not, you know, not come back." And you know, that's great. It's always a, it's always a choice. But typically, the people that I think might end up being de- decent instructors actually end up being decent instructors. Um, and, you know, we've got a, a group of black belts and they're all great and they all help out in class. And But not not all of them have aspirations to do anything like that. Some of them just enjoy coming to class and working out and, you know, that camaraderie. Um, and that's all great. But, you know, there's, there's a few that just say, hey, I want my path to be a, a, a teaching path. And that's great, too. I'd agree. And sometimes it's an accidental journey, right? You, you think when you get your black belt, I just want to go back and learn the charts. Um, and over time, maybe that becomes your goal to you know have your own place. Maybe it doesn't, but all paths are, are perfect the way they are. So here here's a great example of that. Um, sometimes, well, let me let me state this a different way. Sensei Chris, have you ever had any students that kind of just can't um, not be stiff, right? They, they're just always kind of like, I'm going to resist what's going on. And even though it's not in a malicious way, it's just like they don't like getting arm barred. So they're always like holding their arms stiff or they just feel really rigid. And have you had any students like that and you've had to work your way through to get them to sort of change themselves mentally and physically to become better? Absolutely. And you've met my students. I have some real gorillas out there. So stiffness is part of it. And yeah, you just you have to work with it over time and you have to evolve them. And, and oftentimes you find out that it's more of like a mental stiffness than it is physical. It's manifesting mm-hmm. itself that way. But you know, you've, you've got to have them let go and trust the techniques and, um, and that sort of thing. And because of the size of your students, and, and I know them, I think you've done a pretty darn good job at that. Thank you. But again, it's an evolution. You fall down a lot. Uh, quite literally in class, you fall down a lot, but that's different. You stumble, you learn, you refine, you build, and you go back and you run the bases again and see if it works. So I know that I have had a student like that where sometimes the words just couldn't make it happen. And what I thought would be, you know, if that person had 
to deal with that themselves and teach that with other people, I think that might also just release their own mind. And that was one of the things I was thinking when I suggested you teach. Maybe that came as a surprise to you. It did. But sometimes you learn more by teaching than you do by learning at a certain point after you Black absolutely Belt. absolutely do. After a number of years of Black Belt. But sometimes there are students that are too aggressive. Sometimes there are students that are too stiff. Sometimes there are students that are too wimpy. Sometimes there are students that are too intellectual. And I can't, I can't fix that, right? I, I can't create a Satori for someone. I can lead them down a path and they have to discover it themselves. And sometimes those things can only be resolved by themselves as they learn by teaching. And as they learn by teaching, subconsciously they start going, ah, maybe I do that. Or I'm telling this person they need to not be mentally you know, rigid so that their body won't be rigid. Gee, I wonder if I do that. Maybe I should like, you know, think about that myself. And that kind of teaching journey, that learning journey is also something that is incredibly important at the right stage. So that's just one example. But I think like myself who needed all kinds of corrections that really I needed to discover myself and teaching was the way, I think that's the same for, for other people. Shion, we have a question that was submitted by Senpai Mariana on the teaching topic. To strike or not to strike, that is the question. <laughs> we, <laughs> we train Japanese jiu-jitsu for self-defense. We are very much used to being choked and strangled from all positions, pushed, thrown, you name it. However, because we do jiu-jitsu, we don't practice striking much. Bash aside. Right. However, if chances are that striking will be part of a self-defense scenario, shouldn't it be part of the regular training for both the giving and the receiving end? And how do you incorporate striking when you teach so it doesn't look like a sterile lab training lacking of realistic context and at the same time your students don't quit on you and you know and continue to be a jujitsu class? Right, right. That's, that's a good question. So let me address that in a couple parts. So we do have striking uh, at each rank. There is an Atemi chart. So you are learning um, self-defense, striking at each level. Um, and you're you know, learning your elbow strikes and your knee strikes and palm heel and strikes while you're on the ground and strikes against all kinds of different holds. Um, so that is at uh, each level. Um, you know, each level has a component of escaping, striking, throws, weapon defense, Ike, and self-defense scenarios that piece them all together. And that's at each one of our ranks up to black belt. Um, however, we are not a karate class. So whereas a karate class, especially if you stay with it long enough, especially a Japanese karate class, you will spend lots of time learning how to strike with all of your body parts and sparring. And then as you progress and you get towards the end of your brown belt and you move into black belt, well, lo and behold, grappling techniques start coming in. You know, there are things that resemble uh, Aiki techniques. There are things that resemble things from judo um, because the martial arts are multiple different paths to the same goal. The focus for a karate type class uh, is to 
focus mainly on striking as your main set of techniques, but there will be other things involved. And it's exactly the opposite for a jiu-jitsu class. A jiu-jitsu class focuses most on grappling with another person, but there are also strikes involved, um, just as there is eventually use of use of weapons, not defensive against weapons, but use of weapons. Um, so I think what we have now, as far as striking is concerned, is what is necessary to use during a self-defense situation that you can learn quickly, remember quickly, and it's effective every single time. But it is in no way trying to be um, a Muay Thai or, a, you know, a karate or, you know, a Taekwondo or any other of those striking arts, um, because simply we want to devote our time to the grappling arts, which is what we're part of. And we will put in the appropriate amount of, of striking that will work for everybody. Um, but we're certainly not going to spend tons of time like karate sparring or, or anything like that, because uh, we simply don't have that focus. And I think that reflects the self-defense focus too, right, Xi'an? Because in a punching fight, everybody gets punched. <laughs> exactly. Our, our goal is to close distance or create distance. I've had this same exact uh, discussion as a gun instructor, right? Person's like, well, I want to carry five magazines. Why? We are not going to battle. We are looking to disengage as quickly as possible. Get in, get out, and move away. Same here. Right. Now, it's not to say that striking is not important because I will throw an elbow more often than not. Yeah. Or a palm heel because I want to save my fingers. But it's done with intent to do a couple things, to incapacitate and allow me to get away. Exactly. Or move on to the next target. I am not looking to roll around on the ground or in an alleyway for 30 minutes. I'm looking at a high-intensity combat situation that should hopefully last no more than 30 seconds, at most a minute. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It, it, it's really the same as Nawaza, right? I mean, if we're talking self-defense... Nawaza is the last thing you want to do. You de Like you just said, I do not want to be rolling around on the ground in some alley or in a parking lot or wherever with somebody, uh, unless I have to, unless that's how the situation evolved and now I have to take care of it from there. <clears throat> but it's the last thing you want to be doing. And if we think about what we've talked about multiple times, which is the escalation uh, of violence and your response start out with the awareness and then you move to step two, which is the avoidance. And then step three, which is mechanical escapes. And then step four, which is striking and escaping. So that's where it fits after striking and escaping. If that's not successful, right, then it is the taking the person down and escaping. And then if that doesn't work, it's you're on the ground and you do what you can to also escape. So it has a place in exactly what we're doing, but the effective strikes, the things that you're going to be able to pull off in real life is not a hundred different striking scenarios or katas or any of that. It's going to be up close and personal. It's going to be knees, elbows, palm heels, you know, tate, ski, foot stomp, you know, any of that kind of stuff is what you're going to actually use. Like you said before, if two people start hitting each other, somebody's going to get hit. So that's why we choose to not do that if if at all possible. And we would rather take the person down and escape. And also the way our art is set up, I'll bring up White Belt for a second. One of the first things you learn is punch with the counter with the hiji, right? 
that is <laughs> come in, protect yourself, throw that elbow. If that doesn't work, go to a soda Gary. And once they're down, if that doesn't work, you hammer fist them. And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to break their arm. So you do have the different levels of escalation, but again, it's we're getting in close, getting them down, getting away. Exactly. Or we're, we're just making as much distance as possible and fending off until we're in a safe place. Exactly. But because this question came from a black belt, mm-hmm. I would have an answer for black belts that asked me any types of questions like that. If you are interested in striking arts, if you feel like, you know what, I really feel like I need more striking in my repertoire for whatever reason, for whatever personal reason that is, go study a striking art. One of the things that has been passed down as a tradition through the various styles that I've learned is that after you achieve your first level black belt, you have permission to go and study other martial arts. Before that, it's one of our rules that you do not study other martial arts while you're learning from white to black belt. And the reason that is, is number one, respect for your instructors. And number two, a sole focus on what you are being taught now without influence from other things. And once you've got that under your belt, then it's fully acceptable to expand your knowledge and study other under other instructors and study other arts. So if you're a black belt and you have interest in improving or increasing your striking arts, find a good striking focused school and study. If you want to, you know, have better Nawaza or better Nage, join a judo club. Um, if you're specifically focused on Nawaza, maybe even a BJJ club. If you want to learn sword, join a, join a sword club. We're not trying to teach you all the martial arts. We're trying to teach you just jujitsu and unarmed self-defense primarily, even though there's some armed self-defense involved. And we have a methodology to do that, to give you what you need to defend yourself using jujitsu. But after black belt, if you want to increase any section of that or move on to other things that interest you in the martial art world, absolutely articulate that to your instructor. They will give you the permission, which of course they don't have to, but it's just the formality and the respect. And then you go off and and you learn those things with an open mind, starting as a white belt in whatever that other art is. Agree. And I think the continued journey of learning is important, but you also did bring up a good um, bifurcation of it. Coming up through the ranks until black belt, you should really focus there. You, You get too many mind if you start, I'm going to do karate, I'm going to do judo, and then they all start, it just goes blah, turns into a big ball and you don't focus enough. Even talking to Sensei Matt recently, I had a fascinating conversation. He always talks about Kobukai is his base, period. It, it's his base. And I say that because Sensei Matt's somebody who's gone on. He's been an MMA fighter. He's a BJJ black belt. They went on to learn other things. Right. So I do encourage people to go out there because if you, you've got that little hole, right, that you want to plug, you want to learn, go take up a striking class. I happen to know a great place that teaches that right down in Cromwell, by the way. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But also keep them separated Mm -hmm. um, when you teach. That's the most important thing. Don't forget after Black Belt, that journey's yours. That's your personal journey. If you want to go on and learn striking, learn judo, learn any other art, that becomes stuff in your own personal repertoire. What it doesn't mean is that you take things that you've 
you know, learn from these other arts and then come back to one of the other arts that you studied and are ranking in and try to change that to fit your personal need. That's where the mistake is often made. And I'm not saying anybody in Couple Guys is making that mistake, but I've seen it in other martial arts. And again, it just creates that mess, that ball of confusion that you were talking about. When you're going from white to black, you're going from, you know, zero to 100. You're going from no knowledge to a lot of knowledge in a prescribed manner, in a prescribed learning and teaching manner that then gives you the base of knowledge to expand that for your own personal journey. But if you're an instructor, you have to remember how you learned. Not what you know now, not what you enjoy doing now, but what was the journey from white to black belt for you? And was that successful? And did that get you to where you wanted to be? And did it get other people to where they wanted to be? And then you just embrace that and say, you know, I can have all this knowledge, but what I need is a simple, well-prescribed roadmap for my students to go from white to black so that they can then personally explore the entire martial art world after that. So I think that's where the distinction is. Um, you don't want to become go out and become a, I'm going to make it up, a Kyokushin karate black belt and then come back and try to incorporate you know, Kyokushin karate techniques into jujitsu. It doesn't, it doesn't end up making sense and it becomes very confusing to the students. If you fall in love, absolutely love your Kyokushin Karate and all you can think about is I want to become a Kyokushin Karate instructor, go do so. Don't incorporate jujitsu into it then. Go do what, what you love. It, keeping these arts separated before black belt is very helpful for the student's learning journey. And then after black belt, when you've got some experience, you can mix and match things in your head as you see fit that works best for you in whatever your martial art journey or self-defense needs are. There was a question from Senpai Brian, and his question is, the transitions are very clear up to becoming a black belt, but after it becomes much less clear. So are there clear milestones in training as there are in the lower ranks after becoming a black belt? That's a great question. And and like I said at the beginning, I wanted to clarify that from my standpoint. And there are. So if you're a black belt Kobukai student listening to this right now, here's where I think your path should go and what you should strive for and what your goals should be if you're going to stay with Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu training. Number one, after black belt, continue your attendance at the same level that you did before. Number two, your first two years as a black belt should be learning your white, yellow, blue, and brown again from a black belt standpoint and understanding the finer points and asking your instructor about the finer points. You will have an opportunity to train on the black belt chart. You know, there's another 50 or so techniques on that chart that you will not be tested on, by the way. They are for your own personal knowledge for your personal enjoyment, because there's variations of things that are really fun to do. But, you know, you want to really just work on the stuff that you've been working on all along and also enjoy some of the teaching opportunities that you're going to be given because, you know, you're going to be like given the white belts or the blue belts or the brown belts. Go work with them. Go teach. You may even be asked to cover classes when the sensei has to be out and you've got to actually come up with the structure of the class for that night. And, you know, you sort of take some of the pointers and learnings that your instructor gives you on how to, you know, train better, teach better. You also want to slow it down a bit. 
you know, you were on a specific cadence and trajectory as you were going towards Black Belt that just kept building and building and building. And I would like you to relax a little bit. I'd like you to come in and just enjoy doing what you're doing. You know, if you're going to practice five jujinagis, let's say, I know that's everyone's nightmare technique, you know, maybe do four, five of them, slow, easy, maybe even uchikomi, you know, do one quick so you can really feel it. You can, you know, both get up off the ground like, oh my God, that is such a killer technique. And then move on because you have worked your body very hard for four or five, six years. And now you kind of got to be on a maintenance program, reducing injury, um, minimizing that, you know, taking care of your body and continuing to develop the knowledge that you have um, already gained for the first couple of years. Now as a black belt, looking back saying, hmm, I, I need to really dig deeper into that technique and really understand how this works from all kinds of different angles. I also need to understand how to be part of the black belt community. So you're new to it when you're a new black belt and you got to kind of find your place. Where do I fit in? How do I interact with the other black belts? How do I start gaining respect? You know, what do I do to contribute to the community regardless of whether or not you want to be an, you know, a teacher or a licensed teacher? Like how do I just contribute and show up and, and have fun? That's definitely the path that you want to be on. I think you want to start asking the questions that we kept telling you, stop asking questions before black belt so that you can get more in-depth knowledge of, of your art. There are things that are in all of our instructors, notebooks and minds that are not on the chart. You know, feel free to say, man, I'd love to just like dig into your brain and see all the knowledge that's in there. Do you have any, have anything special you can show us tonight as a, you know, a group of practicing black belts that you might think might be fun. Um, explore and enjoy that that period of time as you kind of continue to go through that journey. If you have aspirations to become an instructor, voice those aspirations. After you're there for two years as a black belt, start thinking about whether or not you want to teach someday or not. It doesn't really matter. But if you do, express that because there's a whole different set of techniques and methodologies to become a good teacher. It doesn't just happen. You actually have to have your instructor show you how to instruct as a set of techniques. So ask those questions. And I would say that would be what you would want to focus on. Improving your lower rank stuff, becoming part of the black belt community, asking questions, taking care of your body and only practicing at a certain level of uh, intensity, and really trying to give back to your dojo. Those would be the goals to focus on. I think everything just naturally sort of happens after that. Maybe just a couple more questions. Sure, and I'll try lines. to give shorter answers because I know we're, we're <laughs> coming up on an hour-long podcast, and I appreciate everybody listening that long to our, to our banter. And of which we probably could go on for another hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could just do the lightning round then. <laughs> exactly. Um, so just as a follow-up to that last question, Senpai Brian also asks, how often should he be practicing black belt techniques? I'm going to say every once in a while. It is not something that you should come and be doing every single class. I like it when three, four times a year we can get a group of black belts together and we work on five or six techniques off of the black belt chart. I think that's pretty good. I know uh, Senpai Brian, because he happens to be here in the school in Florida, you know, he'll show up one night with his hand bow in his hand and is just like standing there. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess we're going to work on some black belt hand bow techniques. 
you know, it's when you really feel like it and, and when you can get some of the other black belts to get excited and say, yeah, you know, let's work on that for a half an hour or an hour and, and go through those techniques. But more often than not, every single time I do that, we'll do some of the black belt techniques and we'll do some kind of version of Yoko Tomoinagi or something. And, and then we'll start getting into this whole conversation about Tomoinagi, not just at black belt, but at, at all levels. And you know, how to do it from a push and a pull and in randori and in self-defense and from front choke. And like, next thing you know, we're on a deep dive. And that's more what that training is like than a, like a class that you have before black belt. So if you're doing it three, four or five times a year, a handful of techniques, each one of those times, that's probably plenty. And this last question may actually spawn a whole new podcast episode. So <laughs> uh, Senpai Kyle asks, how many iterations of the charts were there what prompted each change? When was the last change? And how would you like to see them change in the future? Sure. And I'm going to give a shorter answer because I absolutely do believe that can be a longer conversation. And I know we had talked about a podcast that we're going to do that's going to talk in detail about my training journey, specific dates, specific people, when I got ranked, what the charts were like, when the schools opened, all of that. And we'll do one that has that very, very detailed history for people that have those questions. But sort of that being said, uh, the charts have iterated uh, a few times. After Sensei Joe and I worked on a set of charts, they were in that exact format for a number of years. Uh, Sensei Tony, Sensei Todd both learned off of that set of charts, although they've, obviously they've continued to learn, over, learn off of all the rest of the charts over time. So it's not like they have that limited knowledge. They have all the knowledge, but it was just in a different format as we were learning how to structure it and teach it. Uh, then there were a set of charts that we used when we were first in the Hartford area, um, when like Sensei Kenny joined. Uh, we had that set of charts and, and that lasted while we were in Berlin, while we were in West Hartford, and then there were a couple of minor adjustments made when we were in West Hartford, but nothing that was like significant, significant. I think that there was a couple techniques that moved between charts uh, because remember the techniques are on the charts, not because they're easier or harder to learn, but because they're easier or harder to receive and because they're building blocks for things at the next charts. And we definitely, um, the instructors kind of were like, geez, you know, if we knew this first, like, how good would this be after? And it was like, yeah. So we moved a technique here or there, but it wasn't specifically like, like a new technique. Uh, and, and then those are pretty much what's being used now. I would say the biggest change would be the changes that we made uh, when we were in Berlin, deciding exactly what Ike, exactly what Nawaza we were going to use because it was a very, very broad library of things. We knew we wanted to have a little more of what I had in my notebooks on the charts, and, and it took just a little while to kind of figure out where those things would sit. And I think people like Sensei Kenny, Sensei Matt, you know, a few others kind of learned off of both of those sets of charts. But remember, they're just learning tools. I, I want to be very, very clear of what the charts are and what they are not. The charts are are learning tools. The charts are not the answer. The charts are not the answer. They are learning tools. They give you 
building block knowledge to allow you to become a good martial artist and to be able to defend yourself in very messy situations that could change three times in five seconds. So again, I don't want people getting caught up on that. These students of mine that learned on multiple different charts have all the same knowledge that everybody has right now because they've been here through the changes. If you happen to have been a black belt, and I can't think of anything off, offhand, but if you were a black belt that got your black belt 15 years ago, and then you just literally stopped training, well, then that's the knowledge that you have, and it's all good knowledge. But maybe there was some more or something different after that as we as we made some changes. And, and again, we should have a different podcast about that, but they don't have to be written in stone forever. That's That's not the point of the charts. The point of the charts are to ensure that we are teaching our students what they need to know in the world that they live in to defend themselves in 99.9% of all the situations that they're going to run into in a methodology that gives them building blocks of things that are easy to learn, easy to remember, easy to execute. If the need changes, then we should change or the chart should change. And that really just takes conversations between all the black belts. If somebody wants to come up to me, and I'm totally just making this up, but it's just an example, and say, you know, Kataguruma, the way we're teaching it, leaves this giant hole, right? And let's look at it from all these different angles, not just from the grappling and randori, but from self-defense, from front headlock, from a punch, from, and do you see what I mean? And then, you know, a bunch of black belts sit and discuss it and try it and train it, and we either go... Mm, that's appropriate for somebody at a black belt level to think about that. Or we say, you know what? Holy cow, you're right. And, you know, when we teach it for the first time, we need to make sure it's this way and not the way it's been done. Those conversations are absolutely valid and we should all have them. So it's not written in stone. And I would imagine at some time in the future, during my lifetime, after my lifetime, who knows, whenever changes may be made that everybody is fully on board with. And that's great because it just gives our students an even better experience. And Sheehan, I would say those conversations are actually much more prevalent than people would think. I, I think it was only about a week and a half ago, I was saying, hey, I'm teaching with a hand placement of X on this technique. What are your thoughts about teaching it for this person at their level at this time? Sure. Yeah, and those are questions around the teaching methodology. You know, if you take like a Sankajo, right, by the time you're a third degree black belt, you know, so many variations of that thing and so many fine points. But the question, you know, to ask is at what level is what variation or hand placement or whatever appropriate for that person? And those are all valid questions. And I don't think those questions really super change anything. No, those no, are teaching Those are teaching methodology changes. But I think the question was maybe about bigger changes. Um, oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And those conversations about do we need to change? Does something need to be better? Those can all be had with the right level, most senior people for the betterment of the art as we teach it. So I'm hoping that that gives everybody kind of a good view of some of the things that we do and think about after Black Belt. And like Sri was saying, you know, we could have entire podcasts on just how to be a teacher or any of the permutations of the things we've talked about today. But I, I'm just hoping that those that took the time to ask some questions and got some of the answers and that you feel like there is some known path after Black Belt that you understand does not have the structure that it did before Black Belt, but still does have a path that you should think about as you move forward. 
And thank you, Shihan and Sensei. And that actually does conclude all of the questions that were submitted by our, our Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt listeners. And I wanted to take this opportunity to thank Sensei Chris for originating this podcast miniseries on the journey to Black Belt and beyond, and also seeing us through every step of the way to make this extremely beneficial for all of our listeners now and in the future. So thank you, Sensei. Oh, thank you, Sri and Xi'an, for the, the platform, the forum. It was something that just kind of was kicking around the back of my head. You know, I've said it a number of times, and also I want to shout out to each and every one of our Black Belts. You are part of the fabric, the DNA that we have, and your contributions are incredible to each one of our students. Keep training, keep teaching, and we thank you for your support. Now with that, if you've been listening to this, you will find there's a certain passion among the black belts. I like to believe, and we've said it before, Jiu-Jitsu becomes less about something you do and more about who you are. So in closing, I'd like to say it's been an honor and pleasure doing this series. We're hopeful that those who listened uh, found value in it, and those who are maybe non-students also found it valuable. And we hope to have some great topics coming up in the future for you. But, by the way, if you're asking, the journey is worth it. <laughs>